0: Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. February 25, 1946 was a pivotal day in the history of the country, but no one knew it at the time. Gladys Stevenson and her son James, a World War II Navy veteran, went to pick up a radio that they had left to be repaired at a local store, on the courthouse square in rural Columbia, Tennessee. Unhappily voicing her opinion about the lack of workmanship and the quality of her treatment as a customer, an altercation ensued that sparked a serious racial conflict in a community that had a history of strained race relations. The governor called out the National Guard, blood was shed, and people died. More than 100 African Americans were jailed. The subsequent court case featured some of the finest trial lawyers in the country— The incident, remembered as the Columbia Race Riot, was the first such event following World War II and marks a significant change in race relations not only in rural Tennessee, but nationally. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Joanne McClellan, county historian and president of the African American Heritage Society. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning, Tom. And joining us via phone is Dr. Gail Williams O'Brien, professor emeritus from North Carolina State University. Dr. O'Brien is the author of the seminal book on the Columbia race riot entitled The Color of the Law, Race, Violence, and Justice in the Post-World War II South, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 1999 and was the recipient of the American Historical Association's Littleton Griswold Award for the best book in any field in the history of law and society. Dr. O'Brien, thank you for joining us. Oh,
2: thank you for having me. I look forward to an opportunity to talk with you.
1: I'd like to start off the show by asking uh, Dr. O'Brien, how does the Columbia race riot fit into the larger civil rights movement in America?
2: Well, um, during the war, uh, the African American newspapers began talking about a double V campaign, victory at home as well as abroad. And that was carry forward. And during the War itself, 70% of the African Americans who were involved in the in the military um, were sent abroad. And they developed uh, a sense of danger. I mean, they, they, they developed a sense of entitlement as they faced the kind of danger and so forth that they did. So they came back to this double V, victory at home as well as abroad, with a sense that it was time something would be done about it. Uh, They, however, were more interested in voting rights, and, of course, they wanted to settle back in, having been away from home and in danger and battle uh, with their families. So they weren't interested so much in desegregation in public spaces the way we would see in the 1960s, Uh, but they were very interested in a sense of Equal treatment, entitlement, and carrying out a kind of change at home rather than abroad, and not just um, abroad during the war.
1: Sure. So the main premise of your book is that the events in Colombia in 1946 were really emblematic of a nationwide shift. From mob violence against African Americans to increased confrontations between blacks and the police and courts, um, so you're saying there's sort of a, a, a shift in mindset uh, as a result of the war. This sense of entitlement that comes about. Um, why is this happening in America in 1946? What's what's sort of causing the shift, and and how does it speak well, to the? Uh, one of
2: the things that was really important was that. During the war, there began a shift from rural to urban areas. Um, African Americans were the largest rural minority in the country in 1940. They were the largest urban minority by 1960. Not only African Americans, but also many whites um, who had been involved in service and who received a GI Bill in a way that, unfortunately, African Americans did not. Uh, they, too, were... Migrating out of the rural South. And these are to countries, uh, to cities all across the country. And as African Americans moved into cities, be it Baltimore, Chicago, or Los Angeles, uh, as well as in the South, they were ghettoized. There were laws, there was something called a racially restrictive covenant uh, that prevented them from buying and moving into. Uh, white neighborhoods. There was, some, there was sometimes violence by working class whites. And so uh, as we're shifting from a rural to an urban environment, uh, and as many of the white Americans became more middle class, et cetera, unfortunately, the, and, and as African Americans were segregated within cities, the criminal justice system became much more controlling rather than providing justice. So we're we're seeing a shift away from mob violence to control by the criminal justice system, the police, the courts, etc., of African-Americans as we we see the urban expansion.
1: I'd like to ask Joanne, can you speak briefly on the racial history of Columbia, Tennessee, it, and give me your assessment uh, as events sort of unfold in 1946? Are, are is the history of racial the racial history in Columbia is it different from the rest of what's going on in the South?
3: Oh, I don't think think it's different. And the racial troubles in Columbia started really way back during the Civil War. Uh, when the Civil War ended, former slaves attempted to control their own lives, a transition from enslavement to freedom freedom. Many former slaves wanted an education. Their future employees believed that they did not. They did not need to be educated. When the Freedmen Bureau started the schools throughout the South, the public sentiment was very negative. Vigilante groups seeking to intimidate African Americans disrupted the schools, threatened the teachers. Uh, the teacher at uh, Henry Eddy in Spring Hill wrote in his diary that a former United States color troop was shot and later died protecting him from white citizens. And then after the 14th and 15th Amendments were ratified, former slaves viewed the right to vote as as a key element to their freedom. And these vigilante groups terrorized Terrorized African American men to keep them from voting, so numerous acts of violence uh, was documented in Tennessee, including six murders or lynchings by mob and vigilante groups in Murray County. And you know, in 1927, an 18-year-old boy, Henry Schultz, was kidnapped from the jail and murdered. And uh he never got his day in court, and the last person to be lynched by a white mob was seventeen year old courted cheeks in nineteen thirty three after being falsely accused of raping a white girl. Cheeks was released from jail uh when the grand jury did not indict him due to the lack of uh due to the lack of evidence so um the courted cheeks lynching was the one that was really high on the Minds of everyone in 1946 when the situation happened with the Stevensons at the drugstore. So,
1: Columbia had a history of, of racial violence that led right up to World War II. So, these aren't isolated incidents uh, of the past. These, these aren't sort of uh, stories that were deep in the past. When people were coming back from World War II, these were still sort of fresh, fresh on their minds. So, combining what you're saying with what Dr. O'Brien was saying, this is a time for change. 1946, African Americans who had fought for their country saw that they were entitled to to new rights. And when this incident happens, the Stevenson incident happens, things are about to change. Um, so, are we seeing Dr. O'Brien a shift in the mindset among the Black community that went beyond the borders of rural Tennessee? Is this happening just local, is or is Columbia just a flashpoint for something bigger, or is this? Do you see this as sort of an isolated incident?
2: Oh, I think it's it's um, not an isolated uh, incident. As as the shift came from rural to urban environments. That was crucial, and the segregation in the cities, that was crucial nationwide. And what we did see was a move from mob violence, like the horrendous lynching of Henry Choate and Cordy Cheek, to a criminal justice system that more, more often provided control of African Americans rather than justice. And I would just add quickly that there have been studies, even recently, of communities in uh, other other parts of the world, Great Britain, for example, and so forth, um, that indicate that when people interact and live close to one another, there's much less likely to be this kind of control, et cetera, that we see. Um, and and so I, I think it's really a a crucial shift from rural to urban, and we shifted from my violence to the criminal justice system that was often more controlling rather than providing justice.
1: I'd like to mention that uh, as a result of your book and other research that has been going on uh, about the Columbia race ride, I think there's sort of a, a new or emerging view among historians nationally. The Tennessee State historian, for instance, sees the Columbia race Ride as sort of that step one in what would become the American civil rights movement. So uh, I think the Columbia race ride is really taking on an importance, I I think, really for the first time. So let's talk about the incident that started this chain of events. Gladys Stevenson was a 37 year old African American mother of four, who had a broken radio that she took to be fixed at a local shop. What happened next, Dr. O'Brien? And how did this seemingly simple problem turn into an issue of race and violence?
2: Uh, well, uh, Gladys Stevenson had four children. Her, second, uh, her oldest son, James, was 19. And in the Navy, as you said earlier, her second son was 17. And uh, she, had, she wanted to get the radio repaired because all her children wanted it and James was coming home. Uh, so she had taken it to a radio repair shop, which was at the Castor Knot Department Store on the town square. And um, up on the, the second floor was the radio repair shop run by a man named Lavelle Lapointe. And her son, her uh, second oldest son, went to pick up the radio. Uh, and it turned out that something that had never happened before had occurred. The radio had been sold to John Fleming Sr., who had, was in the Cullioca eastern part of Murray County. He had bought it and gotten it for one of his tenants, farmers uh And this had never happened and Gladys ended up getting in touch with her employer and they so you know, the the radio was gotten back and on february the twenty fifth nineteen forty six as you said at the outset of our of our talk uh Gladys and her son James, who was now back from the Navy, went down to get the radio and When they arrived, Mr. Lapointe explained that he wasn't hadn't been able to repair it, and that they would have to pay more for it. In order for him to install batteries, and James uh, and and uh, was said he had done some electrical work in the service and he could probably do it, and but Gladys and Lavelle Point had a loud argument and um, discussion. I would say a loud argument, and during that argument, James. Uh, There with his mother was quiet. And there was also William Billy Fleming, who was the son of John Fleming Sr. Uh, He had also been in service and he was working there under the GI Bill as uh, uh, learning uh, to be a repairman. And he and James just stood there. But as Gladys took the radio and she and James started to leave the store, they, as they went down the steps to the main floor, first floor, this white elderly white man came up carrying along a radio that needed repairing, and Gladys said very loudly, I will take my radio someplace else and have it fixed. All they did here was tear it up. Later, Gladys said she was only talking to James, but, of course, this elderly white man heard her. And at that point, William Billy Fleming said something to Gladys, like, get out of the store. And Gladys told James about it. So James shifted, and he put his mother in front, and he walked behind her. And as they exited through the door of the department store on the ground floor, suddenly um, William Billy Fleming struck through the window with his fist or struck through the doorway with his fist and hit James. And James, unknown to Billy Fleming and uh, perhaps uh, many people, James had been a welterweight boxer in the Navy, and he came up and and gave a hit uh, sock to Billy. And they both accidentally fell through the plate glass window there at the department store, and they came up fighting. And at that point, um, Gladys tried to stop Billy, a man in a khaki shirt that had been in service ran across and tried to stop her Lavelle Lapointe told james they'd better get out because people were starting to mill around on the town square and of course as miss joanne just explained with the cordy cheek and the henry choclist lynchings, that was seen as a very dangerous thing james said he couldn't leave he had to stay and protect his mother but within about three or four minutes the police arrived and James was and his mother were taken to jail and Billy Fleming was taken to the back of the story had a minor cut on his leg and they called an ambulance to get him to the hospital
1: We're going to take our first break right here we'll be right back on History's Hook
0: Don't go away History's Hook with your host Tom Price will be right back after this brief commercial break
1: We all live very busy lives. Sometimes we just need a break. Wouldn't it be nice to have an extra pair of hands to help out? Let me introduce you to New Dawn Cleaning Service. No job is too big or too small because they do it all, from residential to commercial. They offer standard cleaning, construction cleaning, carpet shampooing, and window cleaning. Whether you are looking for a one-time service or regular scheduled cleaning plan, New Dawn is ready to help. With years of experience, you can relax, kick back, and call New Dawn Cleaning Service at 615-977-6901.
0: History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we have Dr. Gail O'Brien with us, uh, talking to us about the Columbia race ride of 1946. When we left the story for the break, Dr. O'Brien, you had mentioned uh, the altercation between uh, Mr. Fleming and the Stevensons. The Stevensons were placed in jail, uh, Mr. Fleming was placed in an ambulance. Uh, how does the story continue?
2: Well, after they were placed in jail, uh, they were placed in the local jail, and they were asked if they had been involved in a fight on the town squire. They both said yes, they were. They were fined $50, and they thought they were then going to be released. And instead, they ended up being held until the afternoon when the sheriff came and picked them up and took them to the county jail. The reason being that William, uh, Billy Fleming's father, John Fleming Sr., had filed an attempted murder charge or, or against them, and so there they were uh, in the county jail. Now, as Hannah Peppers was Gladys Stevenson's mother, James Stevenson's grandmother, and she had crossed the town square to visit with her daughter and, and grandson in jail, and she saw white people kind of off in bunches, and she heard an angry remark saying, we're going to take them to, quote, niggers out of the jail and hang them. So not surprisingly, she was very frightened by that. And so she then, after her jail visit, she raced across the first block of East 8th Street, the black business district in Columbia, and there she pleaded with James Morton, and Julius Blair to help her uh, with her son and grandson and their situation in the jail.
1: So news is traveling across Columbia. This seemingly minor incident is really starting, the, the word is spreading around the community. We have groups of whites sort of milling around the square There's talk about the potential for lynching. So, Joanne, with the number of armed African-Americans gathering on East 8th Street, the white authorities attempted to negotiate with James Morton and Julius and Saul Blair. Uh, Morton and the Blairs informed the authorities that the armed African-Americans would disperse only after the whites did. Uh, And I I find that interesting. They're going to these three gentlemen specifically. Who was Morton. Who were the Blairs and what gave them influence among the black population?
3: Well, um, they were well-respected businessmen in the community, community leaders. Julius Blair was born in Spring Hill in 1871. His father was a carpenter. His father also helped build the Bethel Hotel. Uh, Julius was married to uh, Lavinia Wilkins and Lavinia Wilkins' father was a barber in the Bethel Hotel Julius was actually learned to um, learn his trade as a barber with the father-in-law. The Blairs owned several businesses on um, East 8th Street. Julius had, um, before moving to East 8th Street, Julius had a barbershop shop twice uh, on the square before he moved to Mount Pleasant, and then he came back and moved to East 8th Street in 1919, I think.
1: So they're business leaders in the community. They are naturally the people that the African-American community along uh, East 8th Street in the bottom are looking to for leadership. Exactly. And they're recognized by the white establishment as well as the leaders in the black community. Exactly. Exactly. As darkness falls, uh, the tensions increase. Uh, If
2: I could just interrupt one second, I'd just like to add one little footnote there to this wonderful um, presentation that Joanne just made, and that is that Underwood, the sheriff, had connections with Morton and Blair because they were helping him get elected as sheriff. Yes. The Mortons, James Morton and Julius Blair, w- were helping Underwood with his election. He had just lost by 10 votes to Flo Fleming, William Billy Fleming's brother, in a primary election to be sheriff. And they were there on the town square talking with him. And I don't know, Joanne may know much more about this than I do. But I don't know when African Americans were getting invited right to vote back or whatever, but apparently by the 1920s in parts of Tennessee they were voting. Mm-hmm. And James and Julius had put together a voting block that helped Sheriff Underwood. And uh, that was uh, critical. Also, Underwood's father had prevented a lynching of a white man in Arkansas. So. He was a very different kind of sheriff than the one who had been in office when Henry Choate and Cordy Cheek were lynched. Just one little addition. Thank
3: you. The, uh, the African-Americans started voting um, probably uh, in the 1910s. I've seen records of them being able to pay the poll tax. So, okay. uh, but not, you know, not everyone. You also, you had to pay the poll tax and you had to. Uh, oh,
2: no.
3: <laughs> right. One, yeah. other, one other thing that I may add, which really adds to the significance to James Morton was the fact that uh, when um, Henry Schultz was um, lunched on the, in the courthouse, it was James Morton as a teenager who was sent to retrieve the body. So he had that memory in his mind also. So they were just Uh really um, tensed up about the rumor of another lynching.
1: And I I don't think that can be overstated, the, the aspect of rumors that are floating around Columbia, and it has everything to do with that connection to to the past racial racial tensions, to the past lynchings that had happened here. It's, it's in exactly. the forefront of everyone's mind. Exactly. So, yes,
2: and Julius Blair himself said at one point, there will be no more social lynchings in Murray County. And he said social lynchings because apparently, uh, and I'm sure Mr. Joanne knows a lot more about this than I do, but apparently in the wake of the Cordy Cheek lynching, there had been some kind of celebration party with food and stuff. <laughs> And Julius Blair said, "No more social lynchings in Murray
3: County." That, that's correct. Uh, when uh, Court of Cheeks was lynched, there was a phone call that went out inviting people to the Glendale community to watch. So there were, uh, you know, children, you know, women, men, women, and children there watching that uh, that lynching. So this is why Julius said, "No more social social lynchings." And with Julius. At the time he was like seventy five, seventy six years old. So he remembered both the Henry Schultz lynching and the Kordichik's lynching and everything else that went on in Tennessee, you know, Tennessee had over two hundred um lynchings before that time. So they were just really, really um they were just really, really um tensed about the situation.
1: So as darkness falls uh, tensions increase. Armed African Americans, uh, some uh, probably remembering their military training following World War II, they shoot out the streetlights and they darken the buildings. That sort of brings the tension level up another notch. The shots prompt p- the police to investigate. Uh, Dr. O'Brien, what happens next?
2: Well, um Sheriff Underwood actually released uh, James had released James and his mother from jail earlier that afternoon, and James had gone down to East 8th Street where people were gathering in in that area, um, and his mother had gone home with her with her mother, and that afternoon the sheriff went down there and talked. To them and, and to um, Julius Blair and James Morton and so forth, and he said things were getting pretty hot uptown. And uh, Chief Deputy uh, Claude Gold, who was with the sheriff, said to Julius and, and Saul Blair, or to Saul, you better get them out of town, ta- you better get James out of town. So, in fact, um, Saul and two or three others got in a car, got James in the car there were all kinds of problems with flat tires and engine breakdowns and so forth but they eventually got him to Nashville and got him on a train to Chicago where his dad was so by the time the darkness fell and the, and and uh, things were going on in the uh, down there between um african americans who had shot out the lights and so forth and the whites mob- moving around on the town square james was gone and his mother was gone um so uh, that um, changed that situation a little bit i mean it changed it a lot for him however on the town square as people kept milling around um, the, the police came out uh, and they simply were older the chief wills were uh, two police Wilsford was seventy years old. They were not accustomed at all to the changes that came about or had were in the making with World War II. So they just started walking down towards the the bottom, it was East Eighth Street, uh, where people where African Americans had gathered. And as they walked down there some shots rang out. And none of the policemen were killed, but Will Wilsford was seriously injured. And at that point in time, that's when calls went out to the governor uh, for the highway patrol and the highway patrol and the state guard, the national state guard, uh, came in.
1: Right. So the four officers walked down East 8th Street. It's pitch dark. They're called to halt, yep. but they continue on. Shots ring out. All four right. are wounded. Uh, one fairly seriously. They're mostly hit with buckshot, I think. Uh, Sheriff Underwood right. then called Governor McCord. He he feels that things are quickly getting getting out of control. Governor McCord then calls mm-hmm. the state troopers. Now, this is an interesting side of the story. I think uh, when the state troopers come in, they're they're sort of the the group that that does a lot of the damage uh, downtown. But local police uh, hold back armed whites who are gathering on the square at that point. And uh, troopers who come in uh, as a result of the governor's call uh, raid the state armory, asking for more guns. Uh, But interestingly, they're rejected. Um, So the the troopers are trying to arm themselves. It it feels a little bit, Dr. O'Brien, like the, the troopers are really... Escalating things even more, rather than helping, it feels like they're making things a little bit worse. Does that is that your assessment as well?
2: Oh, absolutely. And there was a, a very sharp distinction between the state guard and the highway patrol. The state guard under John McAvick Dickinson was planning his uh, to go into the military in a permanent way, but his eyes were damaged with chemicals during World War One. Uh, and so he was, he had been trained at an elite university. He was um, much more in control of himself and his troops. And during the war, of course, a lot of members of the National Guard had to go abroad. Uh, so a lot of the people in the State Guard under Je- uh, Jacob McAvoy Dickinson were teenagers. And they tended to be very careful, do us what do what he said, et cetera. In contrast, Lynn Bomar, who had been a famous football player at Vanderbilt, however, um, was uh, he and the highway patrol had a culture in which they roared around on Harley-Davidson motorcycles, they liked to be in the limelight, and they had all been appointed by, jet, by the governor, James Nance McCord. Who had no ties? Well, he was from a rural area. He had only served in the House of Representative, um, the State Representatives, two years. Um, he had no loyalty, no affiliation whatsoever with African Americans, and he appointed the members of the State of the Highway Patrol. So he had so many. Um, uh, fathers who who asked him to appoint their son to the highway patrol that he could pick and choose. And so the highway patrol was quite different in terms of culture and in their politics from the State Guard. And the highway patrol were the ones who went in. They were supposed to all go in the next morning at the same time. There had been an agreement between Lynn Bomar and uh, Colonel Dickinson that they would go in at 7.00. Instead, the highway patrol went into the bottom earlier, and, as you said, they tore it up, they ran through went through businesses, they wrecked it, they tore windows they they that as not just the uh pool rooms and things like that, but insurance companies, the funeral home they they tore it all to pieces, and they got people out and they beat one poor man uh who was in the lodge hall. Hiding out, he was the most seriously injured, though he survived. Um, but as you said, they ended up with a hundred people in jail and uh, a wreck through the bottom. And uh,
1: and, and, and just protected. to be clear, that was really the work of the Highway Patrol uh, under Commissioner Lynn Bomar, who is who is exacting all of that damage. In the bottom, I think it's interesting. General Dickinson had 138 officers and 648 enlisted men who were sent to Columbia. This is a large body. He is supposedly in control, comes up with a plan that they would wait until morning and then, with overwhelming force, just show their presence there in the hopes that that was going to de escalate everything. But as you said, uh, Commissioner Bomar sort of puts that plan aside, marched during the night into the bottom, first going into uh, Mrs. Morton's home. Uh, interesting, mm-hmm. again, the the leadership there. I think he, he's sort of making a point with that uh, and then uh, claiming that there are African-Americans hiding uh, ransack uh, the the business. This is a, a our ne- our next stop for a break. Uh, we'll continue with this story when we come back on History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host Tom Price will be right back after this brief commercial break. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Columbia Race Ride of 1946. Joining us via phone, we have Dr. Gail O'Brien, who is the author of the seminal work on the Columbia Race Ride of 1946, a book called The Color of the Law. Uh, So, Dr. O'Brien, as we continue our story, the uh, Tennessee Highway Patrol has marched into the bottom down on East 8th Street in Columbia, sort of against the orders of the Tennessee uh, State Guard and begin ransacking uh, that community. They're taking uh, a large number of African-Americans into custody. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how this is how this is playing out?
2: I'm sorry, I missed your last question. Uh,
1: can Did you, you can, if you wouldn't mind continuing the story? Can you tell us how how this story is playing out as they they begin uh, arresting uh, uh, African Americans in large numbers?
2: Yes, they put a hundred African Americans in jail, uh, and uh, and then um, there were a couple of African Americans um, who had been removed from the were removed from the jail, and they were placed in an office. Um, and um, James Johnson had asked that he not be released just yet because other African-Americans might think that he had talked about them or said something negative or done something, and so uh, he he and William Gordon and a third person, Napoleon Stewart, were all in the sheriff's office. The sheriff's office and his home were all located in the same building, and the sheriff's son was there, and he was... um, uh, just looking out the window, then there was there, nobody was really paying much attention to them, but all of the guns that or most many of the guns that had been taken from from the African Americans by the highway patrol were stacked there in the corner. And william Gordon, we, we don't know why, uh, he grabbed a gun and he pointed it at the sheriff's um, deputy. And at that point, there was a highway patrolman in the hall. And when he saw that, he fired and killed William Gordon. Uh, he also, they also killed James Johnson, Meade Johnson's son, and he was one of the uh, middle-class business owners in the, on East 8th Street as uh, well, Meade was. And so they were killed, and Napoleon Stewart was badly beaten by these law enforcement officers. Um, and um, we're not quite sure what... Um, prompted all of that but after that it was the ransacking of the, of the um uh, of the home of mary morton and then that horrendous shooting the next morning uh, mary morton got in touch with the naacp she called um attorney z alexander luby in nashville and said they were going to need some help
3: gail i have a quick question uh was there an inquest or coroner's report included in the official documents about I the didn't
2: see any kind of inquiry in or coroner's report related to the shooting of Gordon or Johnson.
0: Mm.
2: Now there may have been um, something that they didn't put in the papers or whatever. But I I didn't really see much in, in the way of an inquiry at all in that situation maybe it was there and i didn't find it but no i did not
3: okay reportedly a nashville banner reporter was present did his did the reporters uh give a different statement if if so
2: Uh, no and that's a good point there was a distinction between the nashville banner and the nashville Tennessean. the nashville banner tended to be run by um, a person who was highly conservative and would not likely have done anything to charge or bring this up in a negative way toward the highway patrol. Uh, the National Tennessean was a much more progressively run paper and would have been much more empathetic in viewing things from the view of the of the African Americans
3: was anyone held responsible for the for their deaths?
2: No. No one was ever charged. No one was held responsible. And in fact, and I'm sure we'll get a little bit into the federal grand jury hearing in a few minutes, they were not, not, held, no, not held responsible at
1: all. So more than 100 blacks were arrested, about 300 weapons confiscated. None of the accused were granted bail or allowed legal counsel. Uh, why is this lack of justice acceptable to the governing establishment in this case? Do you think?
2: Well, I think that um, we have to remember that the governor um, was very empathetic and very supportive of the Highway Patrol. Uh, We have to remember too um, that the U.S. Attorney's office in Nashville, the one of the main individuals there, um, was from Columbia itself um and so there was really um no inclination on the part of those in charge and there was so much emphasis on not doing anything to those who were involved with the highway patrol and so forth that even Sheriff Underwood did not initially say much uh at that point nor speak out but uh yeah there was there was no inclination, be it in Columbia or from the attorney general's u s attorney's office general's office in Nashville to do anything
1: is that typical throughout the South or is this something because of those connections that you mentioned something that's just happening here at this level?
2: Mm, I would think that it's typical because voting and politics are critical right and who's voting and who's in office and the fact that there were African Americans voting occasionally in North Carolina, for example, by the 1930s, there were parts of, Afri- of the African American community around Durham where uh, C. C. Spalding and African Americans had started a, a, bus- a, a very large business and uh, had uh, financial um, uh, financially improved themselves but for the most part in most parts of the south that would not have been the case
1: so you mentioned mary morton's home and business were they were torn apart but she managed to get to the phone and call a friend who contacted the naacp z alexander luby mm-hmm. an naacp lawyer in nashville got word of what was going on and came to columbia can you tell us a little bit about who mr luby was
2: oh my I don't want to go on too long, but he was an incredible individual. He was born in the West Indies. He went to English-run schools there. He loved music. He loved books. He said he wasn't much good at cricket, which was, of course, an English sport. Uh, But his father died when he was about, I mean, his mother died when he was about six or seven. She died in childbirth. His father died when he was 15. And so he got a job at around 16 on a whaling ship as a cabin boy, and he jumped ship in New Bedford, Massachusetts in 1914, and he worked at various jobs and made his way down eventually to Howard University, where he was graduated from high school. It was the last high school class at Howard that he com- he completed. And then he got an undergraduate degree in Howard at, in 1922. He got a law degree from Columbia in 1925 and a Ph.D. in law from New York University in 1926. So he was very sharp, very well educated. He and his wife initially thought they'd settle in Memphis, but that didn't work too well with the you know, crump machine and so forth. So he became an assistant professor at Fisk. He passed the Tennessee Bar Exam and started a law practice in 1928, and he was a long-time member of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He would be involved in the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement in a very big way. But all this said, he was an extraordinarily calm, thoughtful individual, and I don't think cerebral maybe is a popular word, but he, he was thoughtful, very intellectual, and very calm during the proceedings that followed.
1: Maurice Weaver is another lawyer uh, assigned to the case. Uh, he would file a writ of habeas corpus to free the 65 African Americans who remained in jail. Uh, they're sort of being released mm-hmm. uh, in in small groups. Uh, But violence continued when Julius Blair's house was fired upon by unknown assailants. So despite the fact that that the bottom has been raided, uh, things seem to be de-escalated, there's still some violence being perpetrated. There's still some groups of whites who are sort of milling around. National Mm -hmm. racial bias was evident in the newspaper headlines. I was sort of struck by this. The New York World-Telegram... Uh, f- their feature read, this was their headline, Seven Hurt in Tennessee Riot as Negroes Battle Cops. Another read, Highway Patrolmen and Guardsmen Bring Rioting Negroes Under Control. It's giving a certain impression, right? It was, it was getting national news coverage, but these newspaper headlines are giving, giving a little bit different impression with their headlines than actually was, was uh, happening on the ground in Columbia. Do we know what the national uh-huh. reaction to the incident was?
2: Well, um, the national reaction initially may not have been as positive as it would become. What happened was that a number of liberal and leftist groups uh, focused on, they were very concerned about Colombia and what was going on. And eventually, even the Communist Party sent somebody down, and eventually all of the different groups would coalesce under the NAACP. And the NAACP um, hired Oliver Harrington, who was an African-American who had been for a while with the Pittsburgh Courier, and I can go into more detail if you like. He did an amazing job in getting out the word about what had happened in organizing with the defense. Uh, he had defendants and and somebody from the national. He organized five teams um, uh, from the NAACP. Uh, one team, they would have somebody from the national office and a defendant. And they traveled throughout. They they went to 49 NAACP branch meetings all over the eastern seaboard from Boston, Massachusetts, to Roanoke, Virginia, and as far west as Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Kansas City. And they, uh, they got letter writing going. They appealed to so many higher authorities in Washington that President Tr- Truman, who had been very much in favor of individual rights, He he turned all of this over to his Attorney General, Tom Clark, but he was getting overwhelmed. And not surprisingly, as people wrote in about this, they made references to Nazis and Hitler and said that something needed to be done. So there was a lot of publicity throughout the Northeast and into the Midwest, uh, and they distributed the pamphlet. Tara in Tennessee um, throughout, and with all of these um, going on, um, and that was the National Committee for Justice. We may get to that in a minute, but certainly Oliver Harrington did a fabulous job. And I just have to add one little caveat. Oliver Harrington's daughter is in the History Department at NC State.
1: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So so this event, in rural Columbia, Tennessee, is really getting national coverage. There are a lot of groups and organizations who are sort of connecting themselves to this event to create some change, um, it seems Absolutely. to me. Absolutely. Uh,
2: yes, and one other, the National Committee for Justice in Tennessee, that was headed by Eleanor Roosevelt and Channing Tobias, who would be an incredible leader throughout even the civil rights movement and so forth at in forty six he was going. So Eleanor Roosevelt and Channing Tobias headed the National Committee for Justice in Columbia, Tennessee. And they had many prominent members, including Mary McLeod Bethune, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, Albert Einstein, Langston Hughes, Joe Lewis, Adam Clayton Powell Junior, uh Philip Randolph. They distributed fifty thousand copies of the pamphlet Terra in Tennessee. So word was getting out, and it was getting out by a lot of liberal progressive groups.
1: After the initial arrests, the
2: NAACP.
1: Right after the initial arrests, how many were indicted, and what were the charges?
2: Well, after the initial arrest, ultimately twenty-six African Americans were indicted. And they were indicted on charges of accessories to attempted murder in the first degree or attempters of murder in the first degree. Um, Twenty-five were ultimately tried because one uh, of those who was arrested developed pneumonia and died while he was in jail. The other two who were indicted were those two who had been in Saul Blair's barbershop, and as the highway patrol came in that morning, they fired shots at them. Three highway patrolmen were struck, but they were not hit seriously enough to, con- to stop them from continuing to patrol. So ultimately, there were 25 out prison Americans were put on trial for being accessories or attempted murder the- of the police officers. And two were indicted for assault to commit murder in the first degree when they shot at the highway patrolman that morning.
3: Gail, uh, Gladys Stevenson and her son James were charged with a attempted murder originally, but they were not included in the number that went to trial. Um, what happened? Did the official? Well,
2: I'm, I'm, yeah, that's an interesting question. And I'm not really sure, except that James by that time was in Chicago. And um, his mother definitely had not been down in the bottom in the East 8th Street area when the firing took place. Um, and so I don't have a good explanation, except that they weren't there when those policemen were shot, and there were probably plenty of people who could say that. Um, so eventually those charges were dropped, and the focus went to those that who had allegedly, um, well, fired and, and allegedly tried to kill the, the uh, local
1: policemen this is an incredibly important story not only to the history of columbia marie county or even to tennessee this is a, a national story uh as such we're going to do a second part on this uh particular topic we're going to talk about uh the trial we're going to talk about the outcomes in a second part uh to this program uh so uh Dr. O'Brien, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to our second part coming. Thank you, Joanne, for your time today. Uh, as always, I like to uh, end a program uh, with a quote. And we're going to end this show, uh, this quote coming from the pamphlet, Terror in Tennessee, which was written by Oliver Wendell Harrington about the Columbia race riot. He wrote this, The country, which is paid so much with the agony and blood of her best young men, cannot have her clocks turned back. You are the country. You cannot stand indicted before the rest of the world as a last refuge for terror, mass extermination, and the master race theory. The NAACP desperately needs your help. Others gave their lives for a new democratic world. What can you give? On behalf of Joanne McClellan, our historian, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for A Journey Through Time. It's February, and love is in the air all month. There's no better time to find your perfect match than this month with Hiller Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, and Electrical. From now until February 29th, get a free UV light when you purchase select new HVAC systems from Hiller. It's the perfect pair for cleaner, healthier air inside. You'll never be more in love with your home. Find your perfect match today at happyhiller.com. Happy you'll be, or the service is free. Call the Happy Face Truck today Hello, my name is Zach Maddox. I'm a proud third-generation owner-operator of Columbia Paint and Wall Cover, founded by my grandfather, Ralph Maddox, in 1946. Now I'm honored to continue the legacy as owner-operator today. We offer a variety of paint and wall covering products, but our passion is customer service. We can offer many personalized services and can come out to your house or business if needed. Visit us at our store, downtown Columbia, at 1114 Carmack Boulevard, or online at paintcolumbia.com
1: looking for something to take your mind off this traffic how about a true story of instant success did you hear about the two friends who went grocery shopping in ashland city and picked up everything on their list plus seventy five thousand dollars or the one where a truck driver made a last minute stop off interstate 40 and drove off with a cool million all their lives changed in an instant and yours could too so stop by your local retailer for your chance with instant games from the tennessee lottery game changing life changing fun please play responsibly
0: Oh, beautiful gold rush with your sparkling top prize. You surely are a sight for sore eyes. And
1: jackpot slots with your chance of $75,000 winners. Oh, how I'd take you for a candlelight dinner. Uh, sounds like people are really loving the new February Instant Games from the Tennessee Lottery. Play today for your chance to win up to $5 million. Only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly.